Just in case, just in case, comes now the undersigned and hear my request with all due respect. From the honorable, his honor, her honor, your honor, do you want to... Happy first day of spring, and welcome to the March 20, 2017 edition of Just In Case, the podcast of criminal law cases, just in, from the Supreme Court of the United States, the Tenth Circuit, and the Kansas Appellate Courts. I'm Paige Nichols, and this podcast is brought to you by Monnet and Spurrier Chartered on the first and third Mondays of every month. Today I'll be talking about published cases of interest decided on or after March 6, 2017. But first, last Saturday was the 54th anniversary of Gideon v. Wainwright and the second annual Public Defense Day. So, if you haven't bought your favorite public defender a drink or a donut yet, there's still time. There's always time. You know, I think that most of us probably came into the practice of law recognizing the need for counsel to represent the accused in a criminal case. But it wasn't always that way. I thought it might be fun to celebrate Gideon's anniversary by listening in on a bit of that case's oral argument. First up, we'll hear Abe Fortas arguing on Gideon's behalf two years before he himself became a Supreme Court justice. But let me say this, uh, if the court please. If you will look at this transcript of record, perhaps you will share my feeling, which is a feeling of despondency. This record is not, does not indicate that Clarence Earl Gideon is a man of inferior natural talents, This record does not indicate that Clarence Earl Gideon is a moron or a person of low intelligence. This record does not indicate that the judge of the trial court in the state of Florida or that the prosecuting attorney in the state of Florida was derelict in his duty. On the contrary, it indicates they tried to help Gideon. But to me, if the court please, this record indicates the basic difficulty with bets against Brady. And the basic difficulty with bets against Brady is that no man, certainly no layman, can conduct a trial in his own defense so that the trial is a fair trial. Well, that was just one opinion. The lawyer for the state of Alabama had a different opinion. I've talked at the last meeting of the Bar Association when I talked to a group of the state solicitors, and they they were of the widespread agreement that an indigent appearing without aid of counsel really still a better chance of of getting a lighter sentence or or even an outright acquittal than one who who, who does have an attorney. To which Justice Douglas responded, Maybe we should have some new constitutional amendments. Maybe if uh, these laymen are so good at defending themselves, as you say, maybe we should get the Sixth Amendment to the Chief Justice Warren had the last word, and it was a kind word for those who represent indigent defendants. This is a very important case. It's a very fundamental case. It's important to 
to the state of uh, Florida, the state of Alabama, and the other states that uh, have that same rule. It's important to thousands and thousands of poor litigants uh, throughout the, throughout our country. But as important as it is, I, I can't escape the feeling that uh, in many of the cases of these indigent defendants that we're talking about, uh, uh, problems just as fundamental and just as important as this arise, and it shows what benefit we do get from, uh, from counsel in deciding those issues. I want to say that uh, we're always indebted to members of the bar who are willing to undertake uh, cases of this kind as a public service, and uh, we're grateful to you for, for having uh, done so for this indigent defendant. And thank you, Justice Warren, for that recognition. All right, with that, let's move on to this month's Supreme Court decisions. In Peña Rodriguez v. Colorado, the United States Supreme Court held that the Sixth Amendment right to an unbiased jury trumps rules against impeaching the jury's verdict when there is evidence that the jury's verdict was tainted by racism. Racial bias is a familiar and recurring evil that, if left unaddressed, risks systemic injury to the administration of justice, said Chief Justice Roberts for the majority in Peña Rodriguez. And so, here's the rule. Where a juror makes a clear statement that indicates he or she relied on racial stereotypes or animus to convict a criminal defendant, the Sixth Amendment requires that the no-impeachment rule give way in order to permit the trial court to consider the evidence of the juror's statement and any resulting denial of the jury trial guarantee. In Beckles v. United States, the Supreme Court slammed the brakes on probably hundreds of federal habeas petitions challenging sentencing enhancements under the federal sentencing guidelines. Remember that two years ago, the Supreme Court held in Johnson v. United States that the residual clause in the Armed Career Criminal Act was unconstitutionally vague. Well, the career offender provision in the sentencing guidelines had an identically worded residual clause. After Johnson, defendants whose sentences were enhanced under either the ACCA or the guidelines filed 2255 petitions to challenge those enhancements as unconstitutional. After all, what was vague in the ACCA was surely also vague in the guidelines. The Tenth Circuit certainly thought so, and it said so in United States versus Madrid. But it turns out the Tenth Circuit and a lot of the rest of us were wrong. According to the United States Supreme Court in Beckles, the sentencing guidelines are not subject to constitutional vagueness challenges. Why? Because the guidelines are merely advisory. Their advisory character immunizes them from vagueness challenges. But, and this is an important caveat, the guidelines are still subject to other kinds of constitutional challenges, like challenges under the ex post facto clause. For you federal practitioners out there, Beckles means that people sentenced under the post-Booker Guideline Career Offender Residual Clause can no longer rely on Johnson to challenge those enhanced sentences. But remember this, going forward, nobody can be sentenced under the Guideline Career Offender Residual Clause because the Sentencing Commission removed that clause with its 2016 amendments. 
Beckles doesn't change that. Finally, from the High Court, we have Rippo versus Baker. This was a summary per curiam opinion that kind of snuck under the radar. In Rippo, the court reversed a Nevada Supreme Court judgment, affirming Mr. Rippo's murder conviction and death sentence. Mr. Rippo learned during trial that his judge was being investigated for bribery. He suspected that the same prosecutor's office that was prosecuting him was involved in the investigation. He moved the judge to recuse himself, but the judge refused. The Nevada Supreme Court affirmed and the U.S. Supreme Court reversed. The Nevada court used the wrong standard in evaluating the judge's refusal to recuse. The Nevada court held that Mr. Rippo had not shown that the judge was actually biased, but the Due Process Clause requires recusal not only when a judge is actually biased, but also when the probability of actual bias is too high to be constitutionally tolerated. Again, that's Rippo versus Baker. And that's the news from the High Court. I have only one case to report from the Tenth Circuit this go-around, and that's Flores Molina versus Sessions, which is an immigration case. Mr. Flores Molina was denied cancellation of his removal on grounds that he had been convicted of a crime of moral turpitude. The Tenth Circuit sent the case back for reconsideration, holding that a Denver municipal conviction for giving false information to a city employee is categorically not a crime of moral turpitude. Mere dishonesty, absent an intent to defraud, is not enough. And now, it's that time when we click our heels together and say, there's no place like the Kansas appellate courts. In State v. Sharp, the Kansas Supreme Court held that the district court should have granted Mr. Sharp's motion to suppress the fruit of a traffic stop. Mr. Sharp was sitting in his SUV at a red light when he spun and burned his tires by gunning the gas while braking. A police officer two lanes over smelled the rubber and saw the smoke and decided that Mr. Sharp was fixing to drag race. When the light turned green, Mr. Sharp drove forward at a normal speed, not tearing out or otherwise driving suspiciously. But the officer pulled him over anyway, and this stop led to Mr. Sharp's arrest for DUI. When Mr. Sharp moved to suppress the fruit of the stop, the state argued this stop was justified by the officer's reasonable suspicion that Mr. Sharp had committed an exhibition of speed or acceleration, a misdemeanor under KSA 8-1565. The district court agreed with the state and denied Mr. Sharp's motion. On appeal, the Kansas Court of Appeals reversed, holding both that the exhibition of speed statute is unconstitutionally vague and that the officer lacked reasonable suspicion for the stop. The Kansas Supreme Court granted review and agreed with the Court of Appeals that the officer lacked reasonable suspicion. Although the officer thought Mr. Sharp was preparing to drag race, a trained law enforcement officer would realize this concern was unwarranted once Sharp was observed proceeding lawfully after the light turned green, said the Supreme Court. Since this holding was dispositive of Mr. Sharp's motion, the Supreme Court held that there was no need to decide the constitutionality of the exhibition of speed statute. And so the court vacated that part of the Court of Appeals decision, which means that this is still an open question. And so anyone who has occasion to consider the constitutionality of KSA 8-1565 probably ought to take a look at that now vacated Court of Appeals opinion in Sharp. 
State v. Howard is another Fourth Amendment case. Here the Supreme Court affirmed the district court's denial of suppression, holding that the following facts gave an officer probable cause to search Mr. Howard's car without a warrant or consent. First, the passenger in the car had reclined her seat between the time the officer first saw the car and when he made the traffic stop shortly thereafter. It was fair for the officer to infer that this passenger was trying to hide something. Second, the officer was trained and experienced. And so, when he saw an empty plastic baggie in the car with a torn corner, he knew this was common drug packaging. So these three factors, furtively reclining a seat, the officer's experience, and the plastic baggie, combined to establish probable cause. The Howard Court also held that a Missouri suspended imposition of sentence is a conviction that triggers the state firearms prohibition in KSA 21-6304, and that the district court did not err in excluding from trial evidence the fact that Mr. Howard had passed a federal background check before he purchased the firearm he was convicted of possessing. State v. Hardy is a stand-your-ground case. Mr. Hardy shot a man who had just punched him in the face. Mr. Hardy was charged with aggravated battery, and he moved for immunity. The district court granted the motion and dismissed the charge, and the state appealed. The Court of Appeals reversed, and the Supreme Court granted review. The Supreme Court reversed the Court of Appeals and affirmed the district court's dismissal. In its decision in Hardy, the Supreme Court clarified how these immunity hearings ought to work. First, on a motion for immunity, the district court must consider the totality of circumstances and weigh the evidence without deference to the state, and decide whether the state has carried its burden to establish probable cause that the defendant's use of force was not statutorily justified. So the burden is on the state, and there is no deference to the state in consideration of the evidence. Second, the determination has to be made either on stipulated facts or after a hearing when evidence is received under the state rules of evidence. Lastly, the district court gets to decide the timing of the hearing, that is whether to have it, for instance, before the preliminary hearing or after or in a combined hearing, but the Supreme Court says district courts really ought to try to resolve any immunity questions early in the case so as to give the statute the effects it's supposed to have. Again, that's State versus Hardy. State v. Evans is another stand-your-ground case decided on the same day as Hardy. In Evans, the Kansas Supreme Court again affirmed a district court order of immunity. Mr. Evans and a neighbor got into a drunken but initially friendly driveway wrestling match that went sour. Mr. Evans, thinking his neighbor was trying to kill him, got up, went into his garage, grabbed a sword, and stabbed his neighbor in the stomach. The state charged Mr. Evans with aggravated battery, and applying the approach announced in Hardy, the Kansas Supreme Court held that the district court, after a hearing, properly granted Mr. Evans immunity. In State v. Maddox, the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed Mr. Maddox's murder and other convictions, but reversed his hard 50 sentence under Aileen because the judge imposed the sentence without fact-finding by a jury. In affirming Mr. Maddox's convictions, the court rejected claims of instructional and evidentiary hearing and held that the district court 
properly refused to accept Mr. Maddox's no-contest plea to some of the charges and properly refused to suppress his confession. As for that confession, during Mr. Maddox's interrogation, he asked the detectives, You all care if I get a lawyer in here? The detective said, Well, look, this is your only chance to tell us what you were thinking and if you were sorry. If you want an attorney, that's your choice, but once that choice is made, it's done. No more input on your part. We'll have everybody else's input, but we won't have yours. So what do you want to do? You decide. Mr. Maddox decided to keep talking. The Kansas Supreme Court held here that you all care if I get a lawyer in here was not an unambiguous invocation of counsel. The detectives were not obligated to stop interrogating Mr. Maddox, and the court found that his confession was otherwise knowing and voluntary. One last issue of interest in Maddox. The Supreme Court held here, as it has before, that a defendant who asserts a mental state defense and is therefore subject to a court-ordered evaluation by a state's expert is not entitled to the presence of counsel during that evaluation. In State v. Johnson, the Kansas Court of Appeals reversed Mr. Johnson's gun conviction because the district court judge fell asleep during Mr. Johnson's trial. The court held that reversal was necessary even without a showing of prejudice because it is structural error for a trial judge to sleep during a criminal trial. Finally, from the Kansas Court of Appeals, we have State v. Powell. Here, the Court of Appeals reversed a Jessica's Law sentence, holding that the sentencing judge did not follow the proper protocol when it denied Mr. Powell's motion for a downward departure. That protocol comes from the 2015 Kansas Supreme Court case State v. Jolly. Read Powell to find out how two out of three judges on this panel of the Court of Appeals interprets Jolly. And that, my friends, is a wrap. A big shout-out to Oyez for the Supreme Court sound clips. Oyez is a multimedia Supreme Court archive at the IIT Chicago-Kent College of Law. You can visit Oyez and listen to Supreme Court arguments at oyez.org. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Just In Case. If you want to talk back, email me at justincasepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Paige Nichols, and I will be back again in two weeks. Oye, 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 wherefore, whereby, we're ready to wear. Res judicata, give me pizza cutter. Just in case.